Good morning, everyone. If you can uh, find your seats, we like to give some time to get to know folks and talk and do that um, and continue that after the service. Uh, so we finished our series through 2 Timothy. I'm going to come back to it, though, uh, today, and there's a reason why. Uh, we are going to start the book of Ruth today. We'll start that next week, um, and we're going to do the book of Ruth for a few weeks. And uh, the reason that I need to talk about it today is because of some of the things that typically we don't let uh, culture drive the church. We try to let scripture drive you and drive um, our heart as we go out into the world. Uh, we want to be very careful that we're not preaching based on what the world says we need to be preaching, right? Because there's an issue and we need to deal with it. We, we want to walk systematically through the gift of God's love letter that he's given to us so that we can understand and as we go out into the world, know the truth because the scriptures say that the truth will set us free then to minister in the world, to love the world, to know how to live our lives in a broken, cursed place, right? And so that's why we systematically walk through this book very carefully and go Old Testament, New Testament. You know, if you're in our church for about eight years, you'll have covered almost every book in the Bible because uh, that's what we try to do. Um, and we try to cover all different genres. Um, and, and one of the reasons why I decided to speak this morning on this topic is, and some of you may not have heard this, but and some of you may have, um, but there have been <clears throat> some recent news articles that have come out uh, we are a Southern Baptist church. Uh, I don't hide that. I don't apologize for that. Um, but there have been some recent news articles that have come out from the Houston Chronicle uh, that have talked about the sexual abuse and sexual predators within the Southern Baptist church. The Houston Chronicle has released two letters. They plan to release two more this week and two more the following week. So six um, kind of articles uh, on the issue and unpacking that. And so as I prayed through that this week and I worked on Ruth, but that topic kept hitting me. Um, <clears throat> I decided that we needed to kind of back the truck up a little bit and talk about the fact that in the last days, which was 2 Timothy, um, Paul had some things to say about this, but I think one of the problems that we have in the church when these issues pop up is that we, we have believed some really bad theology. And as a result, and theology just means our view of God, our belief about the personhood, who God is. Our the, theo means God, and ology is our belief in that theo. That's kind of how it works. And so the idea of theology is that when we begin to have views of the way life should be or the way God is, and we don't properly context that, then what can happen very easily is we begin to plant seeds that bear fruit that isn't God's fruit. It might look good, might be profitable, but in the end, it's like it's not what God would want. And so I want to talk through this because I think it's very careful because here's what's happening and you need to understand this and we'll, I'll read some scripture to you. It'll make sense in just a second. We'll walk through some things. I'm going to invite Jason to come up in a little bit. He's going to share some things. And as we walk through this, I want you to walk through this and I'm going to pray in a moment as we pray to cover this delicate subject because here's the deal. It's easy to look at someone who might prey on a child and it's not just a male issue. It's a female issue too. There are many female teachers, you can go online and look, that have abused their children and abused school children, and it's messy. Uh, we live in a culture that has decided that the views that God has about man, woman, sexuality, the authority of God, and all those things don't matter. We can make them up, and there aren't consequences. Um, and there are huge consequences. And the church is not immune 
Because in the church, we're called to reach broken people. And you're a broken person. And, and if you're not careful, you could be one step away from doing really stupid. You want to know how I know that? Because Moses did it. So did David. So did Peter. So did Paul. All of the heroes of our faith did really stupid things. Evil things. And yet we look at ourselves and we think, well, I could never do that. I'm... Be careful. We live in a broken place. And the other thing I want to speak to is this, and that is, it's so easy to just say, well, I don't need anybody. I'll isolate myself. I can control my destiny and control my life. And that's the complete opposite of why God left us here. You realize there are only a few things that we can do on this side of eternity that we can't do in heaven. You're going to worship way better in heaven than you worship here. I promise you. You're going to fellowship way better in heaven than you fellowship here because you'll be out of the way and your opinions and the other person will be out of the way and we'll all be an authority to God and so we'll all get along just fine. Okay? We're going to know God's word better. We're going to obey better in heaven. There's so much we're going to do, but you know the things that we can't do in heaven? We can't evangelize in heaven. There's no evangelism in heaven. It's the only thing we can do here. And to evangelize, it means like we read in 2 Timothy the last couple of weeks, we have to rebuke and correct and train and encourage. We can't rebuke in heaven. We can't correct people in heaven. We can't train one another in heaven because we'll be fully perfect. We'll be still learning and growing in Christ, but there'll be no need for rebuke, correct, or training. And can I just tell you, we live in a world that's decided that I want to find a church that just loves me for who I am. Can I just tell you that, yes, God loves you right where you're at, but he loves you enough not to keep you there. He loves me enough not to keep me there because my brokenness hurts other people and so does yours if we don't take it to God and allow him to deal with it. And so if you remember, as we walked through 2 Timothy in these last days, um, and we talked through this issue. Here, here let me read this, because we read it. I'm just going to read through it. I'm not going to, like, recover it. This is Paul writing his final letter to his son. If you were going to tell your kids something that you really wanted them to know, and we talked about this the last several weeks. I mean, this is like, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to give it to you. This is what Paul's giving Timothy, and this is kind of towards the end of his letter. So it's like he's writing his final words. And he says, but know this, Timothy, Insert the name of your son or daughter there in your mind right now. If you don't have a son or daughter, insert the name that you think you might name your son or daughter if you have one. <laughs> if you don't want to have children, insert the name of someone you're discipling who is a spiritual son or daughter that you might have someday that you want to build your life into. Maybe a sibling that you like to pour your life into. Insert that name. But know this, difficult times will come in the last days. Notice the word might isn't used there. Maybe. If we're not good enough, it says they will come. It's a guaranteed promise from God. A guaranteed promise that difficult times are going to come. And how we deal with them, you need to be really careful. Let me explain to you why. There are people in our church, there are people who have come through our church that have had, done some really terrible things in their life. Terrible things. And if you look and say, that predator, that person who did that act, 
they could never be forgiven and we need to all rally up the troops and we need to get them and trust me, there needs to be justice and there needs to be consequences. Paul's clear about that. The Bible's clear about that. I mean, come on. But if you do that and you say that some, I've never heard a kid like that. Be careful because there may be a woman sitting next to you who aborted a child. And she can never feel the grace of God because she thinks, I just didn't hurt a kid, I killed one. And in your righteousness and your indignation and we're going to get them, you've got a young woman sitting next to you who will never fully know the grace and forgiveness and compassion of her God because she knows if she talks about that or mentions it, that she's worse than the person who just hurt a kid. I murdered one. She needs to experience God's grace and forgiveness. And you better be careful because the young man sitting next to you may have an issue, a major sexual issue in his life that he's dealing with and he's broken over. Can I just tell you that I've been in college ministry for 25 years and in 25 years of college ministry, one of the questions I always ask young men is I look at them and I tell them, I expect... I am automatically assuming that as I disciple you, you struggle with pornography and sexual sin unless you tell me you don't. And in 25 years with thousands of students speaking at conferences, discipling young men, I've had two, two who have said they don't struggle. That means your son and your daughters are struggling. They're hurting. They feel disgusting. They don't know what to do with it. And you can pretend like it's not there and take them to church and just hope it gets better. But I am telling you, it is everywhere. You can't even drive to Indianapolis without seeing the drive naked signs on the side of the highway. We live in a culture saturated. And can I tell you, it's no different than it's ever been. Can I just tell you that for a moment? This isn't like a new problem. This is a problem that's been going on, but what we've done in the church is with the new church model, we stopped believing theology. We stopped believing that difficult times were going to come, and we decided we could create a utopia. We decided we live in the promised land called the United States of America, and we can make this place a utopia, and it'll be better than any place ever, and we're going to make it righteous and good and wonderful. And we created a purity culture said, if you ever mess up, you're in trouble. And so young women wouldn't confess their sin. Young men wouldn't confess their sin. They became addicts. They hurt people. The man who wrote, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, says it was his biggest, one of his biggest mistakes in his life was writing that book back in the 90s. Because it isolated young men and young women. And they didn't know how to treat one another and enter into the body of Christ. And instead, they lived in fear instead of being discipled and built into and loved and cared for. I don't tell you this to scare you. I tell you this because here's the deal. When it comes to theology, Jason and I have talked about this numerous times. I was at a conference at one point with some leaders, and this happens to me all the time, but I'm sitting here. There's about 20 people that are leaders from around the Midwest, really from our state, that I'm sitting at the table with, and our state executive director is sitting there, and we're having a conversation. We're arguing about what to do on the marriage issue. This was about 10 years ago, probably about eight years ago. We're arguing about what to do with the marriage issue. What do we do as a church to stand up for biblical marriage, male, female, all that kind of stuff, right? And as we're having this discussion, I'm just hearing all this stuff. And 
After they talked, I went up to the executive director and I said, I said, Doc, that's what called him, Doc, I said, here's the deal. I said, I feel like the discussion we keep having is we're trying to figure out how to keep the promised land instead of figuring out how to live in the wilderness or captivity. And last time I checked, my Bible says the promised land doesn't come until Jesus comes back. So if we're trying to figure out how to keep the promised land, we've already failed and we're believing a lie. And there are parents who say, well, if I just, if I just raise my kids better, they won't need the gospel as much as I did. I can make my kids more perfect than me. Doesn't mean we don't raise them in Christ. Doesn't mean we don't help them. Doesn't mean we don't try to protect them. But can I just tell you, at some point, they have to answer the call to go into the world and know that difficult times will come and they've got to enter that fight and be prepared for it. Having dealt with their own hearts, ready to deal with the hearts of other people. He goes on and he says this, for people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanders, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. Be careful. Can I just tell you, you don't become these things like overnight. They're typically little habits you put in place, right? Like you don't become disobedient to parents at 16. You don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to stick it to my mom and dad. Typically not how that works. Typically it starts very, very young. And what happens is you, you, you let people get by with little things and they keep pushing it. Have you ever noticed that with kids? They just push it a little bit further and a little bit further just to see where your line will be. And then when you drop the line, they test it to see if you'll keep that line or if they could push it a little bit further. So does no mean no? Well, maybe it means no. It depends on when you catch mom and dad. They're watching a good movie and they say no. You know, they don't really mean it. They're just saying no because they don't want to deal with it because they're trying to finish their movie. And then your siblings train the other children on how to do that, right? Like the older train the younger. Like when mom and dad, you do this, right? You don't think that happens. You think you guys are too good of parents to let that happen in your household, right? My kids are now in college and they're telling us story after story of how they did this to us. They are. They used to play a game with us. We figured it out about five years ago. They'd play a game to see who could hand mom and dad the most junk while we were in a conversation. It was a game for them. So we would be in a conversation with someone and my kids would walk up and they would, they would like say, hey mom, dad, here, I hold this. And we just grab it. It could be a turd. I mean, I don't know what, I would just grab it because I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, and they were playing a game to interrupt us, to try to get us to do this. And those little proud, arrogant little kids are over there going, watch this, watch this. And I mean, they are manipulating. And we're like, we're, and at some point, seriously, we looked and we're like, why do we have everyone's coat in our hands? Like, what just happened? And our kids are over there going, <laughs> Because that's our heart. Now, is that really wicked? It could be. If you don't confront the manipulation and confront that, and they start learning how to do that with other people and other circumstances to get what they want, they're going to become this type of a person. Does that mean we live by legalism and you better? 
No, it's in love about the gospel, that it's about Jesus. It's about his compassion. It's about, I don't want you to treat people that way. I don't want you to hand people stuff and you not carrying any of your own stuff. He goes on and he says this. He says, for among them are those who worm their way in the households. They capture idle women, burn them down with sin, led along by a variety of passions. We know that the majority of perpetrators are men that prey on women. That's still the majority. Are there women who prey on boys and men? Absolutely. The majority is still men preying on women. Wow, interesting that Paul would have kind of told us about that 2,000 years ago and warned us and warned women to be careful about their heart and why they're getting into relationships and to warn men about their hearts and to give us wisdom as leaders to look for things. And then he says, always learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, well, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. I don't submit to anyone. And what you believe is what you believe, what I believe is what I believe. And we're just, there's no real truth out there. It's just we, we do the best we can. And that is prevalent in our culture. It's also prevalent in our Christian culture. He goes on and he says, just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, these also resist the truth. Men who are corrupt in mind, worthless in regard to faith, but they will not make further progress. Their lack of understanding will be clear to all as theirs was also. And that's what we're seeing in these articles. These are men that it finally became clear what they were about in the church. They had come into the church. They weren't there to love the church, to care for the bride. They were there to use the church. Some of you may be here to use the church. You come here because you want to feel better. You come here because you didn't have anything else to do. You came here because maybe you wanted a notch in your belt to show God someday. You see, God is like, look, that's not how church works. It's not how a family works. It's not how things should be done. He goes on, he says, but as, but you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings. He says there's going to be persecution and suffering. You can do all the right thing, and you know what? Still get crucified. You want to know how I know that? Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> he did everything perfect. And we said, get on the cross. I don't like to be confronted. I don't want to hear that. And so he was put on a cross because of that. Goes on and he says, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Might be, could be. If you mess up, if you want to live a righteous life, surrender to God for the gospel, making Christ known above yourself and bringing evangelism, rebuke, correction, training, all the things that we can do on this side of eternity that we can't, you are not going to probably be really well liked all the time. You know how I know? Because I've raised two-year-olds. Tell a two-year-old no. They don't look at you and say, thank you, mommy, I love you. I'm so grateful for all that you do for me and feed me every day. They scream, they cry, they fight you back. Or they fake compliance. <laughs> and you had probably both personalities if you had multiple kids in your home. Those two-year-olds are like, okay. And you're like, good, I, I, wow, they listen to me. And you walk away and you come back and there's flour everywhere. And you're like, what? Did we not just have a discussion not to touch the flour? And you said yes? Yeah, we did. I didn't do it. <laughs> he goes on and, it, and he lays this out and he says, evil people and imposters will become worse. Surprise. 
Evil people and imposters are going to be worse. In the church too, Jesus said, the wheat and the tares are going to grow up together. And when the harvesters asked, should we rip out the tares? He said, you can't. If you rip out the tares, you're going to rip out the wheat with it. You've got to let them grow up until their fruit's seen and then deal with it. And that's what we have to do in the church. He goes on and he says, look, evil posters are going to, be, they're going to deceive and be deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe. He said, the only way you're going to make it through this is if you continue to believe what's firm in Scripture. Don't believe the Houston Chronicle. Don't believe all the things that are out there. Go back to the Word of God and dig for the truth and find out what's really there. Because I'm telling you, there is an accuser. The devil's number one name in Scripture is called the accuser. His job all the time, is just looking for an accusation to separate us from God. You ever felt that way? And you know what really hurts? When the accusation sticks. See, Satan doesn't accuse us of crazy stuff we didn't do. He accuses us of the stuff in our heart that we do do. And as a result, that's what kills us and doesn't allow us to experience the grace and love of God. Matthew 18 tells us practically what we can do with some of this. But before I get there, and you can turn there, I don't have these online because we're not sure if we're going to post this podcast or not. We wanted to see how it goes here in a moment. But going back to some of the theology, we have to get away from a promised land theology. The reason the world has not been reached for Christ is not because we haven't had the tools to do it. We can get anywhere in the world on a jet like that. We've got the internet. We have all the resources in the world. Do you want to know why the world isn't reached for Christ? Because we believe in a promised land for us here. I went to the cross conference, which we talked about just a few, well, about a month ago. When we went to that conference, it was amazing to me what they told these young students. They looked at them and they said, look, the last places to fulfill God's commission to tell them about his son on the face of the planet will rape you, will kill you, and will kill your children. Will you go? God tells us we need to go. And we need to get ready to go. It's not like you just jump and go. Like you need to prepare your heart. You need to learn how to be discipled and be in a church and, and to grow and learn how to handle situations so that when you get there, you can handle situations. Like you need to grow up in Christ so that you can go. But can I tell you, most of Christianity today, and the reason I know this is because in 25 years of college student, college ministry, the number one question I always got from parents was not, is my kid growing in Christ? Are they surrendering their life? Are they getting rid of their sin? In. Number one question, every time, always, without a doubt, is my kid safe? No, they're not. Your kid isn't safe. Your kid's not even safe in your own home because you're a sinner. Not to mention there are meteorites that might just blow your house up today when you go home. I don't know. It's happened. You might have a gas leak and not know about it. Pfft, you're done. Heard a story this week in our own community about a decade ago, a young man who pulled his car into his home, shut the garage door, started it, killed himself and the entire family. Not safe in your own home. Because this isn't our home. This isn't our promised land. 
guys, I am so desperately in need for the gospel. I'm so desperately in need for Jesus. I am desperate for a place that isn't here, but I understand that Jesus has said, I've given you confidence, 100% of certainty, that you'll be in heaven with me because of a relationship with me and not what you've done, so you can give yourself back to those people. You can get up every day and go minister and pray for them and love them and care for them, even when they hurt you, even when it's hard. That's what I've done for you. This is not what's being preached in our churches. And so no wonder we got sexual predators all over. We're one of the few churches I know of that doesn't allow transfer growth in our church. That if you leave the bride, which is a church here, and you want to get a new bride, we're going to confront why you're leaving the old bride. What's wrong with that bride? Because there's going to be something wrong with us eventually. You're going to figure us out. Because last time I checked, there's no perfect marriage. And there's no perfect church. We're one of many. And we want to follow and pursue Christ. And some are more messed up than others. And you better have people in your life that are helping you walk through that and see that. And what we've done is we've created a thought theology that says we can control everything and make it better. Should we care about suffering and trying to make people's lives better? Absolutely. And as John Piper says, we should care even more and especially about eternal suffering. And we're getting distracted, and it's costing us. And so as we begin to, to help with suffering, we need to go after the eternal suffering that people are experiencing, that people look like they're not suffering, right? We were at a show choir competition last night sitting next to Carmel High School. Didn't look like too many people over there were suffering. But they are. They're going home at night empty and dead inside. They're going through marriage after marriage, relationship after relationship. Their eternity is at stake with God. We don't even talk about hell anymore. It's like, that's offensive. Don't say it. I cannot say it. It's in my Bible everywhere. And let's be honest. You want justice. I want justice for everybody else. I want mercy for me. And that's the great part about the gospel. Jesus says, I'll give you my grace and my mercy when you deserve justice so that you can go out and share that with other people and tell them that I am a just God. See, this is, this is what we're dealing with and we've got to get back to understanding what this really says because if we're not careful, then we're just going to leave another bride. Oh, those Southern Baptists, they're terrible. I was Catholic, but found out they did sexual stuff, so now I'm going to be Southern. Oh, now I'm going to go to the Methodist thing. Oh, well, they're terrible too. Oh, and all of a sudden we look around, it's like, there's nobody left except you. You never learned how to love to bring proper justice and consequences into people's lives. And just so you know, if you don't think that this hits home for me, you're looking at a young man that at nine years old was molested. This is something that's close to my heart. This is not something far off for me. This is not something I want to see slide by. You're looking at someone that struggled with sexuality because of that until he got help in college. I don't meet with women alone to this day, and I won't. 
I'll meet you at the coffee shop and I will refer you to one of the women in our church for discipleship, period. Why? Not because I'm scared I'm going to do something to you, but because you need to be discipled by women and men to disciple men and I want no accusation in the church. And because I share my sin in my past, it would be easy to say, well, you know he did this and he did this back when he was 16, 17, and 18, so it must be true now. Best way to avoid that is just to say, that's an area I can't step into. It'd be like having the guy that's embezzled millions count our offering every Sunday. No big deal, just count the offering. Because you're gifted with numbers. They always work out for us. No. There are things that, that God has limited you that you can't do because of your sin or you're just not gifted to do it. And there are things that you can do because of your sin and minister to people in ways that other people can't, but it means you have to give it all to God. The mess, the pretty, all of it, and say, God, it's yours. Take and use what you want. Here's the mess that I am. You think it doesn't hit home for me? I have a young man sitting in prison right now who I discipled and walked him through his sexual addiction through high school who decided to turn back and record his own family and put video cameras in his home as a worship minister who's been in prison the last three years. You don't think I wake up sometimes and think, what did I do wrong? What did I miss? You don't think that hurts? You don't think I hurt for his wife, his stepdaughter, and his son, who he'll never have a relationship with again? This hits home in my own family. My sister, who lived for Christ, and most of you know that story, had a handicapped son. He's in prison right now, mentally handicapped, because he went to a Goodwill store with his care worker, and his care worker decided to shop. And he went over and touched a child inappropriately. As a result, he's in prison. And you look and you say, man, you, it's messed up in your life. It's messed up everywhere. That's what the news is telling us. And if you don't think it's going to happen in your own family and in your own sphere of influence, man, it does. So what do you do? Not go to family gatherings? I remember having to tell our daughters when we went to family gatherings, be careful of our nephew. We're going to love him. We're going to do what we can, but keep an eye on him. And his dad always watched where he was and kept an eye on him. Because this is the brokenness of our world. It's mental health issues. It's the brokenness of sin. It's the brokenness that, that, that's supposed to bring us to a place of saying, Jesus, please, we love you. We need you. We need the gospel. There isn't another answer. There's not another solution. There's not enough prisons, not enough laws, not enough death that's going to cure this. And we're supposed to be the ones that deliver that message in its full justice and its full grace. That there is a justice coming and you better be ready before God because of what Christ has done for you. And you better get into a family that helps you understand that and grow in grace and grow in the ability to understand the gospel. In a family that you're willing to be rebuked, to be corrected, to be trained, to be encouraged in. Is there any perfect family? Nope. Ours is just as messy as the next one down the street. And if it looks perfect from the outside, pastor told me a long time ago, if you got someone who comes in your church and they say, oh, we've been looking and we've been to like 20 churches and this is just the perfect one, run. <laughs> run, they're deceived. <laughs> you are not perfect. 
But if you've got someone that comes to you and says, hey, here's some of the problems we see. We're not really sure if we want to get, we're trying to figure this out. Here's how we can help. Perk your ears up. It doesn't mean you give them permission because they may be a wolf in sheep's clothing. But it does mean you begin to say, wow, that's a different kind of heart. Matthew 18 says how we're supposed to deal with people. If your brother is against you, go to him, rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he won't listen, take one more with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, tell the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. This is how we define a cult today in our culture. Indian University defines any organization that would do this as a cult. It's not a cult, it's a family. Because this is what a family does. One parent sees something going on and then they check with the other parent, take the other parent, if that doesn't work, then you get extended family and other people involved to try to help the child. If that doesn't work, you have to begin to question whether they really do believe in the gospel because of their response. Are there broken families? Absolutely. But you better be careful. You need help. We need help to walk through this together. And he gives us an outline. Matthew 5 through 7, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever read through the Sermon on the Mount? Let me just give you the titles real quick. He says, you know, the Beatitudes, which is like the worst sermon ever preached, by the way. Like, it is. Like, read the Beatitudes and actually think to yourself, I'm going to live my life this way. It will not turn out well for you. It just won't. People won't like you. It ends in persecution three times, his first sermon does. Then he goes on, he says, believers are the salt and light of the earth. He says that Christ fulfills the law. Jesus says, I fulfill all the Old Testament law. He said, murder begins in the heart. So before you judge murderers, you better check your own heart. Adultery starts in the heart. Before you want to go after the, check your own heart. He says, divorce practices. He talks about divorce. These are the worst things to start your ministry with. (laughs) Let's just dive in here and go. And he goes on and he says, tell the truth. Go the second mile to love your enemies. Well, I thought we were supposed to kill them. No, sometimes loving is beating your enemy. Can I tell you that? I've said, given this illustration before, if you see a young woman being raped and you go, hey, I gotta love you, could you stop, please? Probably not gonna work. You're probably gonna have to get involved. And my guess is that if he's that violent and that intent on harming someone, you're going to have to keep him from harming anyone again which means you may have to use physical force and restraint, whatever it takes, to get him to not hurt that person. And that is not a wrong thing to do. That is a just thing to do. But see, what we've done is we just kind of isolate ourselves so that we don't ever have to be in those situations. We don't ever have to drive through the bad part of town. Because I live in the good part of town. Who would ever want to go to the bad part of town? See, our theology, we have to be really, really careful with. He talks about money. He talks about prayer. He talks about fasting. Well, that's a fun topic, right? Let's all talk about fasting, you know, in a Baptist church. When most Baptists, it's all about eating. Being real. He talks about God and possessions. He talks about the cure for anxiety. Well, that's something we talk about all the time, anxiety and depression, I mean, he goes through this sermon, don't judge people, keep asking and knocking, enter the kingdom of God. There's two foundations, which one are you building on? That's where the sermon ends. 
and you're going to build a great house that looks great. You're going to build on a foundation and it looks good, maybe. And then a storm's going to come and wipe it out and everybody's going to go, ooh, yeah, that was sand. Because they're going to see what's beneath it. And that's what we see happening in our culture even as we speak. Here's what Jesus said after he, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. He sent them ahead of him to, in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, the workers are few, therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. You think, oh, that's sweet. It's so wonderful. He's going to send out workers to, to help with the harvest. It's, that's so nice. And then he says, now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. You know how many defenses a lamb has against a wolf? Anybody? Zero. Thank you. Zero defense. A lamb has no defense against wolves. He's like, that's how I'm sending you out. Just get ready. Well, well but, but we've got the Constitution and we got... No, no, no. If you want to preach the gospel, I'm telling you, you're going to be like a lamb among wolves no matter what the laws are in the land that you live in. It's going to be hard. And it's worth it. It's worth it. He lays this out. He goes on and he says, in Acts 20, this is Paul. He says, therefore I testify you to this day that I'm innocent of everyone's blood. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock that the Holy Spirit's appointed you to be overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after, look at this. He says, I know. Paul says, I am absolutely confident that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Man, he doesn't even say, I hope they don't. I mean, I'm really praying that it doesn't happen to you. Man, I've really talked to God, and I just, he's going to protect you. It's like, no, they're coming in. When I'm gone, the leadership vacuum, they're going to see it, and they're going to come after you. Get ready. He goes on, and he says, not sparing the flock, and men will rise up from your own number. Can you imagine sitting in that like you're with the group of guys here that Paul's discipled. And he's like, and men will rise up in your own number. And you're like, not me. You know, he's going to, that's going to be you. I told you. Like you're going to, you know what I mean? No, that even people you know are not going to endure. They're not going to follow. They're, they're going to be exposed for where their heart really is. And can I just tell you that God doesn't do this because he doesn't love us. He does it because he disciplines us. He loves us enough to discipline us. And then he goes on and he speaks about being on the alert. And then he wraps up with this. He says, for he said, this is what Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive. After this, he knelt down, prayed with them. There was a great deal of weeping by everyone. They embraced and kissed Paul. They grieved most over his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they escorted him to the ship and Paul left <laughs> to never see most of them again. Like This is a beautiful, beautiful picture of what it means. I'm going to invite Jason to come up. And as we've kind of read through this article, there's some things that we need to help you understand. Because many of you, maybe you don't even know that we're a Southern Baptist church. Maybe you don't even know that, what that means. Because being Southern Baptist is a little bit different. And I'm going to have Jason explain what's called church polity. It's how we behave as a church. And so when you read the articles that are there, and I encourage you to read them. It's fine. And maybe it'll help you know how to pray. When you read the article, one of the things that it says in there is that the Southern Baptist Church needs to take more authority. And if we, if we had more authority structures and, you know, we tell people what to do, that that would work. And I'm like, 
Yeah, like the Catholic Church solved their sex problem by all the authority they have. That didn't solve it. Okay, and so the other part of that conversation then is also this. And that is that even in our own church, there are people that have been hurt by pastors who then left one denomination to go to another one to hurt more people. And let me just tell you, typically when you're a denomination and you tell a, try to tell another denomination what to do in our country, it doesn't go well. You try to warn them, they tell you to stick it because we know things you don't. And we're more right than you are and we'll handle this. So this man is still in ministry under a different denomination. So even if we created a national denominational database, which we already have a database for sex offenders, by the way, right? Now, does the church need to learn how to handle this better? Absolutely. And we have things in place that other churches don't, like transfer growth, like wanting to get to know people and find out their story. And like that's a part of what we do in confronting sin when we see sin and not making everything a sin, right? Because you don't do it exactly how I do it. You're a sinner. No, that's not what we do. But when we see sin and we know it, when we see things, we want to confront it. So Jason's going to explain to you, because most of you don't even know how Southern Baptist works, how Southern Baptist polity works and why we choose to be a Southern Baptist church. Go. Never mind. Just, just a second on the conversation while I was trying to get the mic up. Uh, and I just want to ask, kind of by a show of hands, if you're not afraid to put your hand up, how many people uh, knew about the story, heard, heard about it in the news, or uh, you know, read the article? Or About half the room. And, and how many have, have had discussions that you didn't initiate with somebody, somebody initiated the discussion that, uh, like, you kind of had to be, put some thought to how to respond in that situation. Um, what's that? What happened? I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, so, I mean, the, there was a story that was posted in the Houston Chronicle this week. Uh, basically, they uh, exposed uh, a sex abuse scandal within, uh, within Southern Baptist churches, and they, they wrote a piece about it. Uh, I don't know if you stepped out to the bathroom if he was introing the, you know, the, the sermon, but um, it, you know, it's it, we, we've moved beyond uh, attacking the Catholic Church in the press to uh, attacking Southern Baptists. And, and to be quite honest, when we meet at our staff table on Friday, it's like we we spend some time over the past couple of weeks just unpacking what's happened in the Catholic Church. Not to not to poke fun at them, not to not to laugh that somebody else got caught, but just to ask the big question: what what's going on, and how does this happen, and and what should our response be, and then. Uh, you know, this week we, we showed up um, and, and walked in and, and, and saw uh, an Assembly of God pastor that, that we know well and we've got a good relationship with. And the first words out of his mouth was, man, what's going on with your denomination? Can you get your denomination together, et cetera? And we, you know, we talked 15 or 20 minutes about, about this issue. And, and one of the things that was kind of hard for him to hear in the conversation and what makes Southern Baptist so odd uh, is this question that, Matt was talking about the it's it's the local autonomy of the Southern Baptist Church and most other denominations have a hierarchy you have a national level uh, and appointments uh, are made in terms of who's going to, to pastor or be the, the priest uh, and you know there's a hierarchy of who reports to who and the, the national denomination or in the case of the Catholic Church the international denomination owns all of the assets you know makes all of the decisions etc. Uh, and what makes 
makes Southern Baptist so weird is that we believe in the local autonomy uh, of, of the, the local church. And so uh, our relationship with other Southern Baptist entities is that we cooperate together uh, specifically to partner uh, for funding missions and for funding uh, our seminary so that we can educate and, and train people uh, in order to go out. And, and that's kind of just about it. We, we take that next step of, of appointing delegates and sending delegates to a, a national uh, conference and, you know, in most states, maybe a state conference as well, in order for there to be national resolutions that, that are made, but they're non-binding. Uh, there's nothing that can happen at the national level that, that affects who we are as a local congregation. You know, maybe they'll tell us not to go to, to Walt Disney World, which, which is something that happened in the 90s. <laughs>
you know, that we're going to solve our, our, our national moral issues by if we could just get the, the, the right man of God as a president, and if we could if we could get the court stacked with, with our party, whichever side you fall in, if we could just get the you know the House and the Senate to, to legislate like we believe, you know, then then our country's gonna be great and Jesus can come back and we'll, we'll have the, the kingdom established for him and Jesus here's your throne and, and here you go. Um, you know, we, we, we don't have that promised land mentality. We, we believe that, um, you know, as believers, we're, we're probably closer to the, the Israelites in captivity in Babylon, uh, just, just trying to, you know, trying to live life under a covenant with God and, and be alive to, to the nation, um, you know, around and, and to, your, to your neighbors, your neighbors on your street, the people that, that, that you work with, etc. And so, you know, those neighbors may pick up on this issue. They may... They may ask you about what's going on, or you know, they, they may have answers like this this peace has in terms of what it looks like to solve the problem, you know, and it needs to happen at a nationalized level. We need to have this national database, and uh, you know, we need to we need to have national policies that, that affect the local church. And you know, again, one of the uh, one of the, the conversation points to make sure everyone is aware of is that we are local, we are autonomous. Set our own policies, etc., and, and Mass describes some of them, uh, you know, quite honestly. That we, we don't believe it's good to, to be alone, to meet with somebody of the opposite sex, to have a, a kids worker that's alone with, with a child, etc. Uh, we believe background checks are, are good and are profitable and need to be done uh, as we're hiring staff, as we're bringing people along to, to work with children, uh, etc. And you know, by, by the grace of God, we're try to stay off the radar of, of, of the world looking for something to expose in terms of what, what's going on here. But we do have a greater teacher that's um, you know, looking to accuse, looking, uh, walking around like a roaring lion, seeking, seeking whom he may devour. And uh, we, we, are, we are lambs amongst wolves. So we, we wanted to just kind of do our best to help you along in terms of you know, understanding what, what was written in Google, Houston Chronicle, SDC, and you, you'll see the piece come up. Uh, there have been some national responses from some of our SDC leaders. Uh, they focus more on the politically correct answer of, uh, yes, we agree, thank you for exposing, and we need to do more, and we're going to try to do more. Uh, but they don't really push on, like, we, we believe in local autonomy, and nothing that we do is binding. You know, we're not looking to become the Catholic Church and own assets of all of the SDC churches and send and appoint and, and, and put people um, you know in you know, <coughs> churches and districts um, so I hope that helps you understand um, today's communion it's not by accident I don't think that we're having communion today and here's why we're bringing up these issues, and I know that there are people that are struggling right here in our own church, struggling with how they've hurt people, struggling with, am I forgivable? Maybe you're struggling with your own self-righteousness. You know, why can't I love someone who, who Jesus looked at when he was on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Um, those are hard things. I've been there. I've lived it. Can I just tell you that there are people in our church who have lived it? If you're a woman and you've been hurt, if you've been abused in some way, if 
If that's happened to you, I can tell you that there are women in our church who know that, and one in particular who told me that she would be more than willing to, to let her name be known, and that's, that's Britt, Britt Kirtman. Um, and and Britt was, was hurt by a pastor, a youth pastor. And that youth pastor was Southern Baptist and then chose to go to a different denomination to hide and is still in ministry to this day. And it's painful and it hurts and it's hurt her. And she's had to walk through it and gotten counseling and help and she's more than willing to help anyone. And she told me that I could tell you that. And so um, we, we come up here not to say, we're going to go get it. We come up here to say, Lord, help us. We need you. We need, we need to submit our hearts to you. We need to surrender and believe that your grace can forgive and believe that your justice is true and your law is right. And we need to mold those things together carefully under and in cooperation with a church family the best that we can. Because if we do that, that's what prepares us to be the ministers God calls us to. And so as we take communion, I'm going to read this for you because I think it's telling. 1 Corinthians 11, 20 says this, Therefore, when you come together, is it not really two? I put three dots there because it's like, why do we come to church? Why did you come here today? Is it really to be reminded of your desperation for the gospel and then worship and be grateful and smile and thank God for his grace and his forgiveness and that you know a truth that others don't know? And that you're ready to change and you're just excited to do that? Or is there another reason? Because then Paul says, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? That means to partake and to say, this is Jesus' body for me. This is his blood for me. And everyone needs it. And without the body and blood of Christ, we're all in trouble. We have to pay the price. And then he says, for at the meal, each one eats his own supper ahead of others. Do you put others before yourself? That's what he's talking about. Everybody's running to get something from God. I got to get there first. I got to get my thing, my fix. And he's like, why aren't you concerned for your brother? And then he says, so one person's hungry while another gets drunk. That means they used alcohol for communion, by the way. It's hard to get drunk on non-alcoholic communion, grape juice. We use grape juice. There's a reason for that. But I'm just letting you know there's people that say that there was no wine in the Bible that it was non-alcoholic. Really? Well, then Paul's a liar. Okay, he goes on and he says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? Be careful that you don't look down on others in their brokenness. And he says, what should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for being this way or acting this way. This isn't praiseworthy to have this heart when you come to the table. Then he goes on and he says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. He gave thanks. Can I just tell you just real quick? He was going to get crucified and everyone was going to betray him and he knew it. He was going to take on the sin of the world and he gave thanks. Wow. He gave thanks and broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup this would have been the third cup, by the way. There were four cups. This would have been the third cup of blessing from the Passover meal. This was the cup of blessing he was giving to them. The fourth cup was when he was in Gethsemane and he said, let this cup pass from me. That was the cup of judgment. 
that he didn't, he was like, is there any way I don't have to drink the judgment cup, that my blood isn't the final fourth cup? God's like, there's no way. And so Jesus became our fourth cup. But the third cup is the cup of blessing. And he says, this cup is a cup of a blessing, a covenant. It's a new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, you're reminded that we still are in a world of death. We keep having to die to ourselves to let Christ live in us. It's a constant reminder when I eat that body and drink that blood, I'm not there yet. I'm not in the promised land. I, I need to die. I need to continue to let him crucify my flesh, crucify my lust, crucify the pride of life so that I can live for him. And then he says, as he finishes up, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Duh. Like, if you're just taking it for no reason, then that's a sin. You don't do things for no reason. And then he says, so a man should examine himself or a woman. In this way, he should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. In other words, you're saying, I don't have a problem if God judges me. I'm just going to keep eating. And that's a scary place to be if that's your heart. Then he goes on and he says, this is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. He even says that this is so important that you may be sick or ill or dead because you don't recognize what this really means and what Christ has really done for you in his grace. And then he says, if we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged, but when we are judged, I love this, look at this. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be contemned with the world. In other words, when God convicts our heart and brings us judgment, here's our response. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad. Because I don't want to hurt anymore. I don't want to hurt other people. Thank you for disciplining me that you loved me enough to tell me no and to hold me to it. Thank you. And that's what that means. So this morning, if you're in a place where you're ready to deal with that and examine your heart, go before the Lord and understanding what we've talked about this morning. And you may be someone who's been a victim. You may be someone who's been a perpetrator. You may be someone who doesn't think you've done anything. But I can tell you that in any given day, we're all of those things. And as we take communion together, I want you to examine your heart. I want you to go before our Savior and realize that I need this so desperately today. And I'm going to need it tomorrow and the next day and the next day until he comes with his promise. Because I live in a land that's captive and they don't know this. And then when you get up from this, I hope you go out into the world as someone who wants to tell people about the beauty of the communion you have with your God, the relationship you have with him, to commune with him.